using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags, always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head to head. So you'll be happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong with Arm & Hammer Odor Control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Hello and welcome to the Influence Change at Work show. I'm your host, Heather Stegall, coming to it from Atlanta, Georgia on Blog Talk Radio and YouTube. This show is one of the many ways to help equip individuals and teams to influence change and in Claria. You can find more episodes like this one, plus additional resources to help you influence change at work at inclaria.com. Today, my guest is Paul Thorson, who joins me from Minnesota to make the case for evidence-based change programs, and also to give us some tips on how to do that. <laughs> uh, Paul has over 15 years of experience as an industrial organizational psychology practitioner and is currently an independent consultant. He has a master's degree in IO psychology and is continuing his education as an organization development and change doctoral student at the University of St. Thomas. Paul's work is at the crossroads of organization development, change, and research, and so I thought he could provide an interesting perspective on how to combine research and practice and make that work. <laughs> Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Heather. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. So let's just start with definitions. So I brought up that we want to talk about evidence-based change, but what is that and how is it different from non-evidence-based change? That is a great place to start. And I think that part of what is confusing about that is that we all use evidence every day. So when people talk about evidence-based decision-making or evidence-based change or evidence-based medicine or any of those things, what they're really talking about is the decision-making process. Um, at least that's the way I look at it and many people that I know look at it. So, it's, so people use evidence. The thing with evidence-based change or evidence-based practices are you using the best available evidence? Have you sorted through it and said, okay, I read one article in Harvard Business Review, now I've read their evidence, or is that maybe not the best evidence available and maybe there's other evidence available that might um, contradict that, enhance that, or make it a more powerful argument. And so that's what really evidence-based is all about is looking at the available evidence and appraising it to make sure is it the best available or not. So why would you want to use evidence-based change or just evidence in your change programs? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting distinction too, but I, I think that with evidence-based, whatever you want to put after that, evidence-based change or evidence-based practice or evidence-based management, what you're looking at is how do we look at all the available evidence and truncate it down into bite-sized bits so people can make sense of it and not get overwhelmed. And that way you might have a more rigorous or more, um, credible argument for the changes that you make instead of having to say, well, I heard somewhere this works, or I did this in my last project, so I'm just going to port it over, or... I read some, a blog. Yeah, I read a blog, um, and some people, maybe they know a model, and that model works for some situations, but it doesn't work for all situations, and so what they might want to do is figure out in what situations is that model a great model, and what situations do they maybe need to get a different one, or as you know, many advanced practitioners are able to kind of make a recipe out of their models and customize it for their clients so that they're not just saying, oh, all I know is this one model, so that's what I'm going to use. They're able to make that model work for their client. Yeah, plug and play versus using a little bit more discernment and what you're practicing. 
Exactly. And I think that's where, where some people, there's some confusion when we say evidence-based, because as soon as you say that, we all kind of bring our own experiences to that and our own assumptions and our own, our own biases too. So when I talk to people and I say, well, let's be a little bit more evidence-based about this, they say, oh, do you mean best practices? Yeah. No, that's not necessarily what I have in mind when I say that. But for some people, that's what they hear. They hear best practices. Other people hear benchmarking. Other people hear, oh, you must mean we have to do a lot of metrics. Well, that, that might be part of it if you want to look at measuring your outcomes, of course. But that's not all it means. It's, it's everything as far as appraising the evidence, making sure it's the best available evidence, and then making decisions based on that. So you brought up a bunch already, but what are some of the different types of evidence that you might use in a change program or just in general? So you That's brought up best question. practices, you brought up benchmarking. So what are some others? And I think that that is where the crux of the issue is at, because when I look at it, I go with the evidence-based practice that comes out of Europe and the UK. Um, the Center for Evidence-Based Management has principles that they look at. So it's a little bit more rigorous definition. The funny thing is it mirrors other practices to a certain degree. So when we look at what are the sources of evidence, one is empirical literature. What does the literature say? If you go and do a literature search, what does it say about this particular issue? Another is your own personal experience. You know, if you bring in your professional experience and you have had these experiences before, that's one source of evidence. Mm -hmm. Another one is stakeholders. If you're in some implementations, it might have a huge impact on not just people in the company, but their customers or their shareholders, you know, people outside the regular sphere of who are we doing this change with? And so it'd be good to get a beat on what are the customers thinking? What, what's the customer experience, for example? And so you're looking at, in general, you're looking at four different ones. And one, of course, is organizational data. You know, what does the organization already have? What have they tried before? And you might be looking at some of their metrics or financials and those kind of things, but that's data that should be looked at instead of just popping the model on top of it. Okay, yeah, because yeah, that would be useful, the organizational knowledge and data as far as what's the existing culture and mm -hmm. how change how have changes gone in the past and what's been the roadblocks, what have been the roadblocks for those changes. So that's useful information. Yes, exactly. And you know, it's interesting. I was reading an article. <laughs> I was reading an article the other day, uh, <laughs> but it was an interview with um, Helen Palmer and she was talking about design thinking. And some of what she was talking about with design thinking mirrored this to a certain extent because she was talking about gathering evidence, gathering assessment information, talking to clients, talking to customers, and doing some of the same steps. She didn't call it evidence-based process or evidence-based practice, but some of it was very similar and kind of mapped onto this. Okay. So do you have any examples, that, like real-world examples, that we can bring into the conversation to help illustrate how this works. Sure. sure. And this one might not be a perfect fit, but it's a product I was on last year. And it was, um, in some respects, it was ideal because I was on a project where I was, I was not the, you know, brainchild behind this. I wasn't the person driving this forward. I was just one person on this team, but we had a team that was building a new product and the product was going to take information from their um, employees and figure out similar to a survey, but we had a researcher on the team, we had a consultant on the team, we had a writer on the team, and then this team was one nested team within, you know, interfacing with software people and interfacing with everybody else. So the researcher was literally doing literature reviews, and she was reading up on things like employee surveys, employee motivation, employee retention, and she's able to report back 
what do we have here? What does the literature say? When we start talking about increasing communication between managers and employees, what does that mean? What could that look like? And what, what are some best available evidence from the literature to do that? But then we had to translate that. <laughs> we can't just say, go read this article and expect people to know, you know, things that they don't know and they don't have time to dissect. We had to help them translate that. And so that's where partly where I came in was trying to help translate that into actions, but also partly where the copywriter came in because he could look at it and say, I don't know what you guys mean. You know, I don't have an advanced degree in psychology. You're talking about this. You threw in some extra things. You didn't even realize you're talking about beta weights. People don't care about beta weights. What does that mean? And so he was able to help take that down another level and translate that to a further more usable version. So we had, we also had beta versions happening at the same time. So as this product was being developed, there are beta versions out in the real world of customers using it and giving real-time feedback back to the company to let them know both from a user interface, this is what we like, this is what we don't like, this is what we need, but also the suggestions you made, they're a little bit too clunky or a little bit too long, or could you shorten them, or could you make sure you've got three suggestions instead of five? They have all, all kinds of real-world evidence coming in that they can start shaping the product and shaping the service right away. Yeah, you mentioned about some of the articles being clunky, and I was thinking, you know, some of those research articles, especially coming from academia, you can understand all the words that are on the page, but not how they actually work together. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I can see how it would be helpful to have a translator from academia to practice on the team. <laughs> yes. And as a person who's recently gone back to school, it's interesting to do, um, you know, I have, an access, have not had access to literature databases for a while. You know, I've been one of the person who's been a practitioner and I'll get access to articles when I can through ResearchGate or through other, other ways. And now that I can actually do my own searches again, it's a little bit overwhelming sometimes. <laughs> it's like you type in something about, you know, learning styles or employee engagement or whatever it is that you're looking up and you get back thousands of results and you have to say, okay, where do I start? How do I kind of pare this down into what I'm actually looking for? And it's more than just knowing to put quotes around your search. You know, it's, it can yeah. be a little bit overwhelming sometimes. So that brings up, how do you actually know what to look for when you're doing a search like that? Do you have any sure. tips? Um, I have a couple. Yes, I do. Um, one is to, when possible, use sources that are already available. So one thing that I look for, and this might not always apply to organizational change, but sometimes it will. If a meta-analysis has been done, a meta-analysis is a study about studies. So instead of just one study, it will take an aggregate of 140 or however many are available on that topic, and then it will drill it down for you so that you don't have to go out and read those 140 articles unless you want to, <laughs> unless you have the time to. Um, but you still have to kind of critically appraise that and make sure, okay, does, does this make sense the way they did it? Did they exclude 100 articles? And, and if they did, why? And is there maybe another meta-analysis on the same topic? But a nice thing is some people will take a meta-analysis and then do a summary of it for you. You know, so there's a place called Science for Work. And Science for Work, that's part of what they do now, is okay. it's a nonprofit and they will take a meta-analysis and translate it so that it's in everyday language. A manager can read it in five minutes and start to glean something out of it. And they don't have to go, well, it's just based on one study. Well, no, it's not. It's based on however many were in the meta-analysis. And then they can take that and start to say, okay, I now know <laughs> the wisdom of 140 studies. And, you know, so for example, I used to study uh, job satisfaction and I used to think, well, job satisfaction has a high correlation with performance. It doesn't. It, once you look at the meta-analysis, the, the correlation is actually very low. 
Well, that's a whole other topic that we can yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other topic. <laughs> you, you might want high job satisfaction for other reasons, you know, wellness or employee yeah. well-being or um, there's other things with that, but it's not all about performance. Yeah. Okay. So there's been some talk on LinkedIn about how people don't really want evidence. They want solutions. And so you're, you're touching on that a little bit in this conversation already with talking about how managers don't really want to know the study. They want to know what do they, what do they do? Sure. So do you have a, a point of view on that? I do, because I think that that's extremely understandable. You know, if they're looking at ha- having to hit certain KPIs or they've got certain benchmarks that they need to hit internally, they're going to say, well, I don't have time to do a literature review. What are you guys talking about? And, so, <laughs> and, and I'm empathetic to that. I understand that entirely. And so if possible, you know, maybe they have somebody else on their team, they delegate their team and say, okay, you guys go out and do the research for me and come back or something like that, where they have some kind of infrastructure built in. The other one is things like um, the Center for Evidence-Based Management, that since they're nonprofit, they have a lot of their materials are free and uh, free of charge. So if I wanted to, for example, look up a, uh, thinking of an example here, presentation. They have presentations available where if you said, I want to do a presentation about evidence-based management and I want to talk about outcomes, you could search on their site and maybe find one of those. And then, okay. yes, of course, you'd want to attribute it back to them. But even on most of their materials, they, they say, you don't have to attribute this back to us, which is just kind of shocking in the world of proprietary yeah. information. <laughs> Yeah, I think I still would. I wouldn't want to feel like I'm stealing it or passing, passing it off the exactly. time and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And the other thing about outcomes is now that I'm thinking about it, there are some things that are you know innovative or cutting edge or they're new. And people might say, well, there isn't a lot of evidence on this. Yeah. They're probably right. You know, there's probably limited evidence. They are going to have to use the best that's available. And then the other part of evidence-based decision-making is doing experiments. You know, maybe they say, you know what? we don't know enough about this. Why don't we do a trial in-house? Why don't we do a beta ourselves? Why don't we run this for two or three months and see how it runs with our people? And then we'll have our own internal evidence we can make more, yeah. more decisions based on. And then they'll have outcomes too. Right. <laughs> because something will have hopefully happened in those two or three months. Yeah. Right, right. And I have to admit, I haven't done a lot of experience myself. Um, but uh, companies are doing that to a certain extent. And when they do, they just have a, a, a lot richer data to make their decisions based on. Great. So what are some of the barriers to using more evidence to inform our change approaches? I think, I think part of it is not so much more, but better. And, okay. and so when I talk about the four different areas of evidence, quite often people will be using two or three of those. You know, they might say, well, I'm using my own personal professional experience, or I looked at some best practices, or if they're lucky, they have like a mastermind group they can talk to or a community of practice where they can say, the greater collective wisdom said we should do this, which is awesome if you have it. Um, but the barriers are things like paywalls. You know, if, if you're looking at trying to do any kind of literature review, as somebody who was out of school for the previous 15 years, paywalls are a pain in the neck. Um, <laughs> but there are things like ResearchGate, um, Academia.edu, and a couple others that where authors can put their own material out there and say, you know, I wrote this, it's in such and such journal, but I'm also making it available. And there's a few books too that, that try to aggregate because a lot of books, business books in particular, 
are more or less just people's point of view and their own personal experience. But there are some books that are also aggregating information and saying, okay, let's talk about change. Is a burning platform really, really necessary? And if so, in what situations? And if not, what else? Because that, that's part of it too, is if people say, well, such and such doesn't work because the evidence says that doesn't work, then the follow-up question is, then what does? And, and that's where the evidence-based decision-making can help. Yeah, I was thinking about your comment about paywalls and, you know, we're so used to getting information for free on the internet that we mm -hmm. hit a paywall and we, sometimes my automatic reaction is, well, I'm not paying for that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, but sometimes it's worth the, the investment. So just, that's just my two cents. Yeah, and I'm usually I'm, more than two cents, but that's my two cents. Yeah, and I've tried various solutions over the years. Um, for a while, I subscribed through the American Psychological Association. They have a, a few different packages where you can uh, pay a, a fee. It's like I don't know, three hundred bucks a year or something like that. Um, that's that's one solution. And there was another one I tried for a while through a different association, which was only fifty dollars a year, which actually worked fairly well. Uh, but you didn't. It wasn't free access to everything. It was free access to a database. Some articles were free, some were still locked behind paywalls, but it gave me a foot in the door. Um, and Google Scholar, you know, sometimes you can search things through Google Scholar. Next thing you know, you found the full text and you're doing a little happy dance going, oh, <laughs> I don't have to pay for this. I found the full text of this article I was looking for. Okay. So for people who don't have a lot of time or haven't had a lot of research experience, how would you recommend they start doing this? I would recommend that they do, <laughs> this is going to sound funny. I was going to say they do some research first. Um, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Um, what I'd recommend is that they look at things like resources like the Science for Work that I mentioned earlier, because their website does take things like meta-analysis and put them in and transfer them in. So if they say, you know, I'm, I'm looking at doing new things with teams and trust, they can find information on there about that. So Science for Work is, is one great uh, resource. Again, it's free. Um, again, the Center for Evidence-Based Management has a bunch of free stuff on their website as well. You can become a member and get more access as well. I'm, I'm not trying to just pitch for them, but they have a bunch of stuff on their website that's free. Um, a lot of presentations, teaching materials, and stuff where they can say, okay, if you need to do a rapid evidence-based assessment, how do you do that? Here's our nine-page PDF that's free that you can look through and help you to get some clues on how to do that. Okay, great. So I'm also curious to hear if you've ever experienced resistance to evidence-based practice or just evidence in general. Yes. An organization and what have you done about that? Or what have you seen done? Um, learn some hard lessons along the way. <laughs> so one thing that's important is to, um, especially if you're working with a change leader or somebody who is the person who's paying you, is, is to have some conversations about them to find out where they're at and to make sure it's a good match for you if, if, if you're a practitioner. Um, and for example, if, if they want to do some kind of implementation and you know it just it, does, it isn't backed up by evidence or you don't, you, you say no to the project sometimes and say, you know what, I don't, I don't think the evidence backs up learning styles. I'm not going to help you implement that, for example. Um, but the other thing is to, along with that, to do some sniff testing along the way to find out, okay, where do they land on these? And, and can I give them some, some outcomes-based research so, so they have a reason to think this is a good thing? Because without the outcomes, like you mentioned, 
then they're just going, well, that's just a bunch of academics in the ivory towers doing studies on psychology undergraduates. That doesn't apply to my business. And, and that's not all that research is. There's lots of flaws with research, but there's lots of great things with, with research that's academic as well. Yeah, it seems like evidence is the logical argument. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people need that emotional argument. And so I was just thinking about how, you know, how do we bring that emotional side into the evidence somehow? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that... Um, there's some people making an argument that what we should be doing more of is storytelling. And I'm, I'm empathetic to that view. I think that storytelling can be important. Um, I think that many of us are all just kind of wired differently, right? There's all individual differences. So somebody might have a strong belief in science and they, and they hear this and go, oh my gosh, this is what I've been waiting for. This is great. And somebody else listens to it and says, I'm an intuitive person. I, I don't need all this other stuff. I'm going to go with my gut. Um, yeah. So, so storytelling might be one of the ways to help bridge that. Of course, then we have to ask the question of what's the evidence for storytelling? And, and is that <laughs> <laughs> It's just never ending, isn't it? <laughs> it's never ending. But I think that that is, is one of those ways where you can bridge it because you do have to have some kind of connection. It's like, um, you know, I've done a lot of surveys, right? And in the survey world, if you just give somebody a presentation deck that's a bunch of tables and graphs and charts, there's going to be a huge disconnect right away. You have, to, you have to tell a story with the data, and there has to be some kind of visualization with the data. Um, even I don't like just a bunch of tables. You know, I can surf through them and look for, <laughs> I can surf through them and look for trends and, and see some themes, but it's not my preferred way of looking at data either, not, especially not as far as an outcome or, or as far as a product or a service. Great. So what's the one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation about evidence-based change? I would want them to take away to do to appraise the evidence, to do a critical appraisal of it and figure out, okay, is this the best available? Is there more I need to be looking for? And who else can I reach out to for some help if I need it? And along with that, to apply it and then do some kind of appraisal at the end of, of did the outcome work? What do I need to do to maybe tweak it next time? What's, what's my assessment of the actual critical appraisal and the application? Because without that, you know, people can just kind of end up repeating the same thing over and over. So there has to be some kind of outcome on the end to um, evaluate it. Great. And where can people learn more and contact you? Well, I can be found on Twitter pretty easily. I'm SurveyGuy2 on Twitter. I I use the same handle on Medium, so I write a few articles about these types of topics. Um, People can contact me by Gmail if they want to. My email address is SurveyGuy2.0 at gmail.com. And so that would be fine. So as far as if people want to contact me directly, I might be able to refer them on and um, help them find some more resources as well. Great. Well, thank you. And thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Heather. I enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for listening to the Influence Change at Work show. If you'd like to find more resources to help you influence change in your organization, including individual coaching, team workshops, and upcoming training events, please visit inclaria.com. While you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter and receive a free change readiness assessment to find out if your change initiative is set up for success. Until next time, best wishes on your change initiative.
Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head to head. So you'll be happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong with Arm and Hammer Odor Control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to hefty, ultra strong trash bags. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head to head. So you'll be happy, happy, happy. Hefty, ultra strong with Arm and Hammer odor control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Yeah.